Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. This is episode 146 of Historically Thinking. My guest is Daniel Paris, a historian trained in the history of modern Russia, but by day, he is senior vice president and senior portfolio manager at Federated Investors in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is the author of three books on investing, the most recent of which is Getting Back to Business, Why Modern Portfolio Theory Fails Investors and How You Can Bring Common Sense to Your Portfolio. But he's also the author of Storming the Heavens, the Soviet League of the Militant Godless. Oddly enough, for a podcast called Historically Thinking, we're going to be talking about the first mentioned book, the one on portfolio investing, not the one on Soviet religious policy. Daniel Paris, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So um, let's start with your previous life or your secret life or whatever it is, when you answer the signal, is it a hammer and sickle is projected on the clouds and you immediately race out to do Soviet history. Um, what was the focus? How did you come about doing a, a major work on Stalin's religious policy? Uh, yeah, it, it's more, more like I've, I've had essentially two careers, uh, one in one direction and the other, uh, a, a real pivot when I was in my 30s. But the interest in the first half was very straightforward. I, you know, mm. raised in the – born in 1964, raised in the uh, kind of late Cold War, the Reagan era Cold War, very interested in politics, very interested in history, uh, very interested in, in, in what was going on in foreign affairs. And so when I – uh, went off to college my freshman year, I thought it would be a good idea to study Russian 101 so that I could make some additional progress in understanding the Soviet Union at that time. Uh, little did I know that Russian 101 met at 8 a.m. five days a week, which <laughs> turned out to be non-standard for most of my fellow freshmen. And it's so I ended up character. having yeah, – and I had a very small class as a result, uh, uh-huh. and I uh, uh, was able to make a lot of progress with Russian and, and continued uh, – really focusing on that. It was just, it was interesting at the time. It was the late Cold War. It, it was the, the Reagan era. Uh, and uh, I just thought it would be very interesting to understand what was going on there. One thing led to another graduate school. The Soviet Union becomes quite brittle, opens up to archival research. I have an opportunity. I was among the first uh, uh, of the uh, the Western scholars to get into party archives, and that was just you know pure luck. And uh, the topic of research on was again sort of chosen in some ways by the the uh, uh, where we were in the industry at the time. The industry, and I use I use business terms now for <laughs> academia. My apologies, but the you're not, you're not wrong. Yeah, the the uh, the community of Russian and Soviet historians in the West sort of systematically moving through the Soviet period. So my supervisor's generation had worked through uh, at great in great uh, detail uh, the revolution of 1917. And then my generation was given the task of figuring out the 20s and 30s. And uh, I just thought that the anti-religious campaigns were were an interesting uh, offered interesting insight into political culture. Uh, Russian political culture, Soviet political culture, and again, we might call it now Russian political culture yet again. Uh, the anti-religious material, the atheist campaigns were bureaucratic, et cetera, but I thought they really uh, uh, showed how the Bolsheviks were trying to reshape society. So there's more on the, the political culture 
element of the equation than there is so much on the atheism side, though it, it deals with both. Mm -hmm. So at some point, um, you became, turned out as a, a freshly minted PhD and you switched. So could you explain the switch briefly? Because people are going to be wondering that. Sure. Yeah, it was a little unusual. Uh, and there's some stories that may have gotten a little more exaggerated or interesting over the years <laughs> as I retell them. But I was very fortunate. I finished my PhD from the University of Illinois. I uh, was very pleased to have done that. And I got a, a tenure track to two-two job, meaning two cl two classes each semester plus research support at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming. And um, moved out there, but that was the mid-1990s. Uh, and the Soviet Union had collapsed and Russia was a mess. And as a consequence, enrollments and funding had also begun to uh, weaken. And I, I just wasn't 100% certain that I'd had much of a future. Not, I, I was pretty certain I would be okay at the University of Wyoming, but you know, we weren't from there. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, could I write my way to another location? And again, we enjoyed our time there, my wife and I. But uh, it wasn't what I imagined with a career in academia because it is a, a, a quite a small uh, university. And uh, so I just decided to, with the outlook for Russian studies poor from a funding perspective and an academic perspective, enrollments and so forth. Uh, I, I simply decided to uh, retool myself and and go into uh, and go into business. Hmm. And so, how did you do that? I mean, because this is on people's minds who are not getting a two-two uh, job at a at a research university, however small and out of the way. And so they're now getting their doctorate, and they're thinking, "Huh, no one's going to hire me. I refuse to." Um, what was Harry Blackman's line about the uh, the death penalty? I refuse to no longer uh, tinker with the machinery of death and become an, an adjunct. Um, yeah. So they want to figure out how to become something else. Uh, how did you go yeah. about doing it? Yeah, and I, I would say, again, using the uh, terminology of business my last 20 years, the overproduction, the excess production, the excess inventory of the academic industry is just ridiculously high and evident if you look at it. Uh, and individuals entering master's or PhD programs need to know exactly what they're doing. And I'm afraid, mm -hmm. as you point out, very few of them realize that uh, there yeah. aren't too many 2-2 jobs down well, at the they, other end. They realize it, but they, they, they don't think it will happen to them or to their friends. Other people, well, then, yes. then, then we, we raise a fascinating other issue about self-knowledge and, uh, you know, which is, is important. And so I, my transition, though, I, I have to say was an act of will. I jokingly and now it's harder to make this joke just because of the political context. But I, I, uh, I said, you know, I was reading a lot of Ayn Rand at the time and not because I'm an Ayn Rand fan, but simply because it was an act of will. I could be saying that I was reading, you know, Nietzsche at the time, but I simply yeah. it was an act of will. I. Um, uh, forcefully created an uh, alternative identity, which I stitched together from bits and pieces of my life. My father had been a pilot. I always was interested in commercial aviation and aviation of any sort. Uh, Russia was opening up to commercial aviation. I was knowledgeable about Russia. And I began in the very, very early stages of the uh, internet. Uh, you may remember, or you may not, a non-graphical <laughs> browser called Lynx, L-Y-N-X, which was a textual yeah. browser. And sitting in Laramie, Wyoming, I put together a newsletter about the prospects for commercial av aviation in Russia. Wow. <laughs> I managed wow. to sell that to a few um, uh, online sources. The value of those newsletters was less than zero, but um, it allowed me to put together a line or two on a resume 
and mm -hmm. uh, convince a New York consulting firm that was uh, interested perhaps in having someone who had an, uh, a writing background. You know, uh, most of the New York or the aviation consulting people come from an aviation background. I had, you know, called a social science background and they thought they could mix, uh, mix the two, use my writing and research to, to go along with all their aviation folks. It was an interesting idea. I wouldn't say that worked out really well, but I worked at that aviation consulting firm for a year, got some mm -hmm. business jobs, had a few other transition jobs. Uh, but finally, uh, after uh, uh, about two years, settled into New York as a financial researcher for hmm. an independent stock research firm. Hadn't so really did, imagined that, but, but yeah. that's, that's, that's what ended up happening. You didn't even get your MBA. I mean, right. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think so many academics who think in terms of degrees, I would immediately, oh my gosh, I need to get a degree for that. Um, but you actually thought like an entrepreneur. Yeah, I I had uh, spent you know quite a bit of time in graduate school getting a PhD in history, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> exactly, no, exactly. I don't. Yeah. I I'm going to see if I can do this in a different way. There are credentialing systems that are available that don't involve a graduate degree, the CFA program. And I, I uh, another act of will and rote memorization kind of uh, forced my way through that. Mm -hmm. I, I will say the, the funny part of it was the hardest part in many ways was I ended up in New York at a, this consulting firm. I was 32 years old, 33 years old. I'd never opened up an Excel spreadsheet before in my life. And I was <laughs> supposed to be doing uh, you know, project finance for uh, third world airlines. And that uh, that was really hard. Um, mm -hmm. The business analysis and the writing were not, but the 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 technical parts of being in the business world were 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 hard. I have to admit. So, um, Marshall Poe of the New Books Network told me that I should ask you about nine eleven. Um, I guess you, you were there at the at the moment, and I'm, I don't think I've talked to a historian who was actually present at the at, in New York at the time, and who yeah, witnessed everything. It's a, it's sort of a, I still kind of a frightening uh, reflection upon what happened, but, uh, and it, it led to us being in Pittsburgh where we've been for the last uh, 18 years. And I've been with the same employer uh, oh. since we moved in 20, 2020, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 2002. So it'll be 18 years uh, next mm -hmm. year. But Irina and I, my wife and I were, uh, my wife is Russian, uh, were, uh, uh, downtown and arena was in the the transport center in the basement of the world trade center at the time of the attacks oh and uh she was right outside when the second plane hit and so we we spent you know a, a long day we ended up being fine uh and but we we spent a very long day and we simply um as i suppose some people said you know maybe we we don't have to live here we can we can <laughs> Uh, we can go someplace else. And at the time there was a recession, uh, I was already in financial services, but uh, at an independent research shop and, and um, uh, there was a, a modest recession afterwards. And, and uh, I looked for work and uh, outside of New York and there weren't too many options, but I got a very nice uh, uh, option in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, we went out, I went out to interview. I brought Arena along. It was a day which was not raining and cold and, and miserable <laughs> weather. And after the interview, I came out and Irina and I said, and I, you know, how was it? She said, it's fine. She walked around, went to the museum, said I could live here. And, and we said, yes. And then it's, it's been rainy or, or snowing or, or hailing ever since for 18 years. The weather here is not great, but, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's just a series of, of, uh, of fortuitous, uh, moments. And, um, uh, and that was the transition from uh, Russian history at the University of Wyoming in Laramie to hmm. to my current employer in Pittsburgh. So you then 
have become a, a senior portfolio manager. Is that, is that right? Yeah. The, so uh, the business card says senior senior vice president, senior portfolio man, yeah. manager, federated so investors. In how Pittsburgh. did you um, how did you move into that niche, and, and what is that niche of investing? If you'd explain it to 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 me and those of us who know nothing about it, other than they have a portfolio, they think we have we think we have a portfolio manager. Yeah, um, the term is a little bit ambiguous, but you do you you might actually yeah. have several. If you have a financial advisor <laughs> at um, a, a brokerage or a, a private bank or just a bank or a trust company, or even if you have a person who advises you in terms of recommendations behind the scenes at Schwab or Fidelity, they often go by the term portfolio manager because they're allocating assets or making recommendations to you. Another narrower form of portfolio manager, which is myself, is I oversee a particular set of portfolios in a specific style, uh, which is dividend investing. And that's where I'm choosing the securities that go into the portfolio and trying to achieve certain outcomes for the clients, in, in my case, in terms of uh, dividends and dividend growth. Uh, and so, but most people would understand the term portfolio manager most easily in terms of their 401k. They have products mm -hmm. in their 401k. They have products meaning uh, funds. And there's somebody behind that fund. If it's an actively managed fund, there's a person like me behind it. And if you don't know what active or passive is, we can get to that in a moment. If it's a passive fund, there's someone a couple steps further removed that created the index upon which the and manages the index upon which the fund is, is maintained. But there is someone ultimately way in the background, either making discrete choices about what assets go into a portfolio or what index to use and what passive approach to adopt uh, for a portfolio. And that's, that's what I do. Now, I came up through, again, and this is maybe relevant for the background in history, I came up through the research and writing end of the equation. Mm -hmm. You know, I was not uh, hanging around Wall Street as a, as a teenager. Uh, I um, was, it was somewhat remote to me even through my college years and graduate school years. Uh, but the notion of analyzing a problem, writing about it and coming to a conclusion is something that historians, you know, are essentially trained to do. And mm -hmm. that, that skill was transferable. Hmm. And uh, into in investment management. Hmm. So we're, we're that's we'll, we'll get to that eventually. But right now, I want to know. Um, you mentioned dividend investing. That's your style. You, you described it as, which is nice, yes. a nice way of yes. calling it. So, what is this dividend investing style? Could you define it? Please. Sure. So in, in, in two, there are two ways you could you could look at this sort of as the simplest way is if you invest in a stock fund, do you get a dividend and how much is the dividend? Okay. And it turns out you can have more or less. It, many Internet stocks, uh, new economy stocks don't have dividends at all. Most old economy uh, companies uh, pay dividends. They're publicly traded. Uh, a dividend is simply a share of the profits and it's paid mm -hmm. out in cash to the company owners. If you were a real estate investor or a private business owner, it's very commonsensical that you would uh, and accepted that you would you know, distribute profits to the other company owners. Curiously, in the US stock market, that's not the case. And so there are lots and lots of companies and stocks that don't distribute profits to the company owners. Again, in the private world, that doesn't exist really. Um, uh, but as a consequence of there being that choice of, of you know, does a certain company pay a dividend or and, and how much, 
that creates the room for a uh, so-called dividend investor for that style. Uh, there are also other styles which are common on your mutual funds. And if you look at Morningstar, you can find these. Morningstar is kind of the arbiter of taste for for, for mutual funds in this country. Uh, you know, value, growth, core, and then large, mid, and small, and so forth. Uh, there actually is no Morningstar box for. Uh, and again, those of you who may not know what Morningstar is, it's, it's it's look it up. It's an interesting we'll company link, in we'll Chicago. Link to it in the show notes. Yeah, they 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 uh, track and rate all all mutual funds uh, uh, in the country. Um, there is no uh, equity income or dividend style, but uh, you can get this get the idea that uh, a dividend investor, very conservative, a dividend product, very conservative, looking for companies that do pay dividends, stable dividends, growing dividends, and and that is at one level how I define myself, or I would say how others define myself as a dividend investor. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the way I define myself, and this is the topic of the book, the most recent book that you referenced, um, I just refer to as business investing because literally all business investing other than startups or highly distressed businesses, whether they're publicly traded or privately held, whether in the United States or someplace else, uh, they're basically about the present and future cash flows of the business. Very few businesses go on for 50 years without distributing a profit to their shareholders. And most businesses try to distribute profits as fast as possible. So um, the the uh, leading internet stocks in the United States, uh, and for compliance reasons, I tend not to discuss individual securities in a public mm-hmm. forum, um, but they, they are exceptions to the standard, uh, the standard rule. And uh, so I, I characterize dividend investing not as dis- really dividend investing, but, but just business investing uh, the way anyone might invest in a, in a, a fast food franchise, in r- rental real estate, in any business. Again, other than startups or highly distressed businesses, the, the measure of success of a business is whether it can distribute products to uh, profits to the company owners. So I guess that's how the business investing then and investing in business is how you would prefer or, or strongly argue that we should think about investing. So I want to put a pin in that and come back and circle back around to it a little bit. Uh, I do want to first, I, I, I forgot to ask you something that's been bugging me. How did you decide that you're going to keep on writing books? I mean, you didn't have to. This is the third book you've written on finance and on dividend investing and some aspect of it. So you didn't ever manage to get rid of that itch, apparently. Uh, you are correct. And, you know, um, itch or illness, hard to tell which. But <laughs> uh, trained, as a, trained as a historian, like writing, uh, but it's more than that. And I think this is something that uh, many – academics or writers can appreciate. I, I write these books not so much to show what I know, but to force myself to learn it. Yeah, so right, I exactly. ended up in a different and, and career. Through a problem. Yeah, to work through a problem. There's no better way to work through a problem than, than to write about it. And uh, when you see it on, on the screen or on, on paper, you see flaws in the argument or additional points that you need to make. So I ended up as a, a, in a, very, uh, a career for which I was not formally trained. Well, I, I passed all the certifications. I quickly did my CFA and I, I worked my way up the, the greasy pole of, of investment management. But even when I got to where I was, I said, you know, I, I, I really want to understand this. And the way that I really understand it is by writing about it. You would think that's <laughs> that you, you only write after you fully understood something. No, I, I, still around. I, I forced myself to write to make sure that I understand it. And yeah. so three books later, I, I'm happy to appear on 
podcast discussing uh, dividend <laughs> investing because I feel like I, I finally get it. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's a lovely point. And I didn't realize that, for example, uh, until I was teaching, I didn't realize I actually had to teach a class in order to understand something. So by golly, I'm going to teach Plato's Republic, which I've never read because otherwise I won't read it and I won't understand it. Um, and you and probably so won't understand it until you've taught it, you know, as you exactly. said, you know, you times, get up and, two or yeah. three times. Indeed. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll have my first level of understanding, but I still won't understand it. But that's the only way to begin to understand it uh, properly. Um, and likewise, now um, you write a book and you realize somewhere in the process, this is exactly the same, the same thing. I didn't realize that when I was writing my dissertation. Um, I don't know if you did, but it, I, re- I realize it now. That's what I was supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I only got through before I left academia. I heard one narrow technical book on Soviet history. I right. feel like I, I, uh, you know, made some good first steps. But uh, had I stayed in that profession, my learning process would have continued. And I, you know, yeah. at some point, hopefully, I would have said, "Okay, I finally, I finally got the Russian history thing." <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, you begin the book, uh, getting back to business, with a chapter um, called what chaos looked like and has begins with two humorists uh mark twain and groucho marx i'm going to read the mark twain epigram from puddinhead wilson uh because i love it uh it's from the i think puddinhead wilson's almanac i think october this is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks the others are july january september april november may march june december august and february and by the way, you should look that quote up, uh, listeners, and then realize how he arranged the the months to keep you guessing. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a cute, it's a very uh, cute Twain piece. Uh, that, it, uh, yeah, it it, 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 ca- it sucks you in. It sucks you in, and it also captures his own life at that moment in 1894, where he was going bust with various investments. Lots of people uh, were. Lots of people were. That was the great crash of what, 1893, the financial Correct. crisis of 1893. Correct. Um, and he went ugh, epically because he loved to speculate. So let's talk about chaos. What does chaos look like in the so, 1890s you know, and all through the 1920s when Groucho Marx is going down to, I think, the, the stockbroker's uh, office in Great Neck? Um, Correct. What does so, chaos look like? Yeah, chaos looks like a system that, or uh, the absence of a system, but a phenomenon that becomes very, very popular, but for which there are no set rules. And uh, and the book's about how modern portfolio theory uh, uh, emerges to provide a set of rules, but it filled a vacuum. That's the point that you're making, and that the point of those mm-hmm. early chapters is that uh, stock investing and bond investing, but uh, uh, investing in publicly traded assets became very, very popular. The United States is an increasingly wealthy country in the middle to late 19th century. Uh, there's a, a successful middle class. Uh, there is uh, a need for, for the English are putting money into the U.S. market. Um, there's just a lot of money sloshing around, and the stock market's a good place for it. The, there's nothing wrong with that. Companies are raising capital to invest in plant property and equipment. The, the only problem is there are no rules. People, there are there may be a few exchange rules. That is the New York Stock Exchange and the other the curb exchanges and the other ex, uh, city exchanges in you know Philadelphia and Boston and so forth. But there are no intellectual set of guidelines. It's mm-hmm. other than you know uh, timeless and universal. You know, uh, can you make a buck buy low, sell high? Uh, so this is frequently. 
this is, I mean, at its most elemental, um, this is my very mean understanding. Uh, stock exchange exists as sort of an association of people who are going to trade in stocks, and stocks are simply shares of a company offered so that the company can raise money. That- yeah, I mean, the, the purpose of uh, of of capital markets is is not a bad one. Uh, I mean, we're right, in a period where this is always always debatable. These things, but but if you're going to build a railroad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, unless unless you are unusually wealthy as a starting proposition, you're going to need to raise capital. And no to one do is so. wealthy enough to build a railroad all by themselves. There were a few, you know, robber <laughs> barons who got rob- there quickly, but but as a basic notion, uh, you know, a mortgage is a form of raising capital to, to purchase yeah. a house because yeah. you can't do it. Alone. There's absolutely nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, it's generally. All the things being held equal, which they never are, it's a good thing. And uh, a lot of plant property and equipment got built, and the, the U.S. industrial expansion occurred, and uh, capital raising played a, a critical role for that. You can see that now in, mm-hmm. in uh, you know, biotechs and, and uh, tech companies. Um, they don't raise the money from the private uh, – from uh, uh, public equity investors anymore. They raise it from uh, private equity venture capital people. But the idea that you would – Take on partners to finance a venture. There's nothing wrong with that. The the problem was in the first iteration, first, second, third iteration of that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries up through the ni- 1920s when it got really crazy, there were really very few guidelines. And uh, there was a lot of malfeasance. Uh, there was mostly nonfeasance in terms of people uh, exercising uh, – diligence in, in making investments. But one of the reasons they couldn't do so was because there were no rules. There was no there were no books on the on the wall saying how you value a company or how no, you might I, approach this venture. I want other I want than to, speculation. I, yeah, I want to emphasize that you're not talking about necessarily the bad actors of guys who amounted to con artists when they were offering stock. I mean, there's, we're not talking about Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live Now, where they are offering stock oh. in a non, essentially non-existent railroad company. That's put that to one side. The fact is that no one knows the rules of how to choose companies to invest in, right? Is that, or create a portfolio. So portfolios, as opposed to individual right. securities, have some very interesting dynamics but okay. no, and, and can, some good dynamics. But, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, uh, well – the, the basic idea is if you invest in one entity – and again, this is uh-huh. in Shakespeare and, and uh, uh, sure. Merchant of Venice. You know, my, my, I'm going to botch the quote, but my, uh, my fortune is not vested in one bottom only, meaning a bottom is a boat, but in several. Yeah. Uh, it's also even in, in the Old Testament. Uh, basic notion of diversification is that if you mm-hmm. make a single investment, you live or die by the success of that investment. If you – uh, put your capital into three, four, five, ten, or fifteen investments. The risk of all of them going uh, south at the exact same time is actually fairly low, and so mm-hmm. there is a diversification benefit. Uh, and the notion that a portfolio, the, the results of an investment exercise should be viewed at the portfolio level rather than just at the individual level was. Someone had to come up with that. Someone had to make that statement. It turned out to be a 22-year-old at the University of Chicago, Harry okay. Markowitz, in 1952. But prior to that, it's really not formalized as a as a, a way of thinking about it. It's a little commonsensical, but not, not necessarily for everyone. And for people who have day jobs and who are interested in other things, they may not have thought about those rules uh, because they didn't exist at that time. They don't have right. access to them. So, so diversification uh, is one rule, but that was like one of the few rules that people – had sort of 
uh, had teased out of the chaos. Uh, a little bit of teasing out because again, the 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 dyna- the the quite interesting dynamics of basic diversification had not been worked out okay. prior to the uh, prior to the crash. It took uh, it took the period after the crash for a lot of this to be worked out, both mathematically and intellectually. But there's an intuitive nature that a, mm-hmm. a portfolio is probably a better approach than individual security, unless you're a punter, meaning unless you really are a gambler and you want to put all your eggs in one basket. There was Andrew Carnegie's famous statement attributed to many people, and it may be Andrew Carnegie, it may be, <laughs> may be others, but it's put your e- eggs in one basket and watch the basket closely. And then the anti-Carnegie camp uh, in the in this period would implied that diversification was a better approach, but there was no full theory of, of diversification until uh, after the crash, frankly, after uh, World War II. So there, there, the absence of guidelines consists of portfolios versus individual investments. The absence mm-hmm. of guidelines considers how do you value a security? Mm-hmm. How do you think about it? The absence of guidelines is how do you even look at a company? This is where Ben Graham, Warren Buffett's mentor, comes in. He wrote mm-hmm. a book saying, here's how you look at a company. It's real simple. You start with X, you go to Y, and you go to Z, and then you go through A, B, C. And you, you ju- and until Ben Graham wrote that down, it really – how you would look at a company, a railroad, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Most investors, even professional investors, wouldn't have had a – a template to analyze and say it's doing well or it's doing poorly. And uh, so that's what I meant by chaos is mm-hmm. all of these things were missing about how how people would go about this enterprise of, of investing. So Graham is one of these uh, men that you call architects of modern portfolio theory. Am I right? Well, he's 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 one of the uh, founding fathers, not so much of of modern portfolio theory, but of security analysis. So yeah, there are three fellows in the 1930s, right after the crash, who are and I I, I describe them as uh, showing up after a tornado or a storm and saying, boy, this is a mess. Let's clean this up. Let's set up some basic ground rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Maynard Keynes, believe it or not, is one of them, uh, a fellow by the name of John Burr Williams. And then Ben Graham uh, is probably the most famous from a uh, security analysis perspective. And they did separate things, but they were writing in the 1930s, 1934, 1936, and 1938, where they begin to lay down some ground rules uh, uh, about how you might go about investing either – collectively or individually as a portfolio level at an individual level they don't necessarily even agree with each other there there are disagreements uh, in them but at least they're trying to create an analytical framework that would help people understand what on earth is going on in the stock market the theory modern portfolio theory which we now labor under and i would say are oppressed by is a uh, more explicit uh phenomenon of the post-war period yeah, go on and speak about that. What is modern portfolio theory and who, who are its architects and what does it do? So uh, modern portfolio theory is how – this is you know where for your, your listeners, uh, whether they are uh, financial advisors, history professors or anyone in between, uh, it doesn't matter. Everyone is affected by modern portfolio theory uh, because of the way that 401k programs are set up. Really, brokerage accounts are set up, investment 
management guidelines, model portfolios are set up, all of the reporting that you get, it's all within an MPT, Modern Portfolio Theory Context. And the, the basic point of the book is that you know MPT emerged in the post-war period as a system to think about portfolios and investments, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, uh, except the possibility that it's wrong, and <laughs> certainly the fact that it's now uh, almost 70 years old. You know, mm-hmm. 60, 67 years old. So modern portfolio theory really, uh, as an introduced in, in uh, 1952 by a 22-year-old, Harry Markowitz, um, argues you really do need to look at the outcome of the portfolio, not individual securities, and that's quite wise, uh, and that you want to you know, maybe shift from a handful of Carnegie-like investments to uh, uh, maybe 10 or 15, and his example is 10, um, uh, because you'll get this, this diversification effect where things don't all go bad at the same time. And as a matter of fact, although you could argue things won't also go good go really well at the same time, um, uh, you actually get an optimal uh, series of outcomes from a total return perspective. We'll discuss that in a second. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you have a portfolio rather than individual securities, and there's a place, depending on your risk uh, tolerances for volatility. Again, we don't want to get too jargony or technical, but there's something called the efficient frontier, uh, where you get the optimal mix of outcome, total return, for a certain amount of risk, and vice versa. Boy, is that – that's like nothing Nothing runs like a deer. That is a, such a great intellectual concept. Uh, whether it works or not is another matter, but it was a, simplif- a simple, easy-to-understand um, – way to encourage investors to think about their investments. You diversify, the more diversification means lower volatility, you probably expect accept lower returns. Lower diversification, you accept higher volatility and get higher returns. You end up on where you want to be on the efficient frontier. Uh, it's simple, easy to teach, math is not hard, um, and it filled a vacuum can't beat that. He was first, you know, uh, for all the good work that Ben Graham did, he didn't really have a theory of portfolio analysis. Um, John Burr Williams was about the math of individual uh, companies. And uh, uh, Keynes was really looking at macroeconomic issues plus the psychology of the stock market. He's, his mm-hmm. stuff is really fascinating. So the stuff from the 30s is really important in cleaning up after the crash. But it's uh, academics – operating in the 50s and 60s who come up with what your 401k program looks like now and they are responding to that period of an absence of a any any reasonable theory they're responding in some ways to to Graham and, and John Burr Williams and Keynes and, and coming up with a modern mathematical approach to investing. And in a nutshell, that's it. In 1952, Harry Markowitz does it. He's a graduate student, as I said at the time. His system is unimplementable in 1952. He comes what? out of the book Why? in 19... Uh, because the calculation of getting on the efficient frontier was simply not feasible at the time for uh, uh, most investors, even with the early stage computers, and you, the mm. data available to do it wasn't available. He had to come up with it's almost hand calculated. In 1959, he articulates it uh, again. Uh, uh, there are further academics, uh, James Tobin, uh, in the late 50s, but specifically a bunch of academics led by uh, Bill Sharp in 1964-65 turn around with some additional developments that make investing in this manner feasible mm-hmm. and um then so you, you have the, computers 
so and the computers the computers really help because you in order to figure out how individual investments are going to do versus one another you need some math and computers really help in that regard um, so that getting this dose the right dose of, of um, outcomes and volatility and risk becomes feasible starting in the mid 60s the computers are there the the formulas are there the investment houses the fund managers they begin adopting this uh, and you, um, you you now when you walk in with your financial advisor they ask you about your risk tolerance mm -hmm. and they put a number on it and then they're going to give you growth growth uh, portfolios, blend portfolios, value portfolios based on your risk tolerance. It's kind of linear. It probably shouldn't be linear, but it, it is linear in the simplified model. And so you are still uh, experiencing uh, in 2019 or 2020 modern portfolio theory as, as it was worked out in the 1950s or 60s. My question to yeah. investors is, uh, you know, uh, is that is that is that good? I I don't think so. But you know, a well, lot me, of people think it's you, fine. Let me quote you to yourself. Um, the way you've described it, and it's so in such a lapidary and sort of closed fashion, um, makes it sound like that modern portfolio theory. Well, you know, it's like um, you know, ke equals one m one. Uh, now I forget mv squared. Um, one half mv squared. I mean, this is like. Uh, this is this for solving kinetic energy. It's like action and reaction. Okay, right, sure, Einstein, right, that's fine. But right for the rest of us, action equals a reaction and kinetic energy equals one half mv squared. Um, but you say, on the contrary, modern portfolio theory is not a final achievement. Quote, modern portfolio theory arose in a specific historical context, which most certainly served the needs of the time. A half century later, however, it has become equally clear that as far from the universal and timeless solution, most market participants, like me and most of everyone listening to this uh, podcast, accept it to be. Please explain yourself. Well, this is this is. Uh, I'm, thank you for quoting that because that really highlights the intersection of being a historian and finance. Yep. That's why. I, that's, why probably, I, that's why I, I chose it. Pie, so. Yep. Yeah, uh, thank you. That's a that's a soft pitch right down the middle. Uh, yeah. uh, I think many of us in many disciplines assume there is a, a correct way of doing something, and that it has no history. And you're you know once you figure out that correct way, that's what you do for the rest of of your uh, of your your professional career. It turns out that's not really the case. And and I'm going to make some exaggerated claims. But if you're Please a plumber, you. if you were a plumber, it would probably be helpful to know the history of plumbing because it gives you the, uh, the, uh, how things have changed over time. And it, even plumbing is going to change over the next 50 to 100 years. If you're a, a brain, brain surgeon. Believe it or not, the guy who first did my house uh, here in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, wrote a, a paper for his at the community college on Roman aqueducts. Uh, quite, there you go. The fan. I mean, yeah, he, and, he, he believes it makes him a better plumber too. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, if, and if you compare some of the Roman aqueducts to the plumbing in, in Pittsburgh, uh, there's be nice. great, there'd be a great utility in being a historian. If you're going to brain surgeon, um, you know, if you're a baseball player in the history of baseball, if you're pretty much in any endeavor, it is, you know, my personal opinion that knowing the history of said endeavor uh, 
gives you a, uh, a greater perspective on how things might change and evolve. And it rarely is it the case that things don't change or evolve. Uh, yet I operate in a profession. I just accidentally ended up in a profession with almost zero historical sensibility. The sensibility of this profession is there's a formula. You just have to find it and apply it correctly. If once you find it, it's a matter of execution. That's how you make money. It's the, you know, the, the philosopher's stone. It's, uh, it's alchemy. And um, the, now that the rules have been uh, discovered uh, and they're in the CFA, but that's a credential or an MBA mm-hmm. program. Uh, all you have to do is memorize the rules and, and you'll make your fortune. And as a historian, none of that really, really made a whole lot of sense to me. And hence why I did all the research in those the three books and looking at the history of investing and, and uh, why I ended up as a dividend investor. But specific to the last book, people are applying rules, MPT, uh, and and a data point, something called beta and alpha, uh, these are goals in uh, a measure of volatility and then a goal, an outcome goal within investing for professionals that you know were created in the 50s and 60s as these as as what I call moonshot error activities that were uh, tremendous improvements over what went for what went before as we discussed early on what went before was basically nothing uh, intellectually. Uh, but they 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 were first. They're not necessarily right, mm-hmm. and uh, that's uh, there, there's no evidence that modern portfolio theory is uh, uh, the only way to invest. As a matter of fact, um, the uh, the approach that, that that I take, focusing on cash flows and approaching businesses, uh, investment publicly traded uh, businesses, that is stocks as businesses, and focusing on the cash flows is is almost precluded by the way modern portfolio theory is set up. And yet, I do it. Frankly, there are others who do it, uh, and it is it's you know you only need one uh, uh, to disprove a, a theorem. You only need you know one counterexample. Well. There are lots of counterexamples to modern portfolio theory, uh, yet it is it is still um, enjoys pride of place and is is view. It's very easy to teach, by the way, and there's a virtue to mm-hmm. that. If you're training new people coming into an industry, do you, do you want to teach them something that you know? Say that listen, it's not clear what the answer is, or do you want to give them a formula, let them memorize it, and figure it out on them, themselves? And well, frankly, it's the latter, which is which is more commonly uh, yeah. uh, the more commonly adopted approach. Well, let me, I mean, uh, you were at Oxford, and as you know, the first line of defense at the University of Oxford uh, against any innovation is, we've always done it this way. <laughs> um, and of course, that any any tight culture, and any tight and successful culture, is, says the same thing. Um, they've enjoyed success, they're, they've, they've inculcated that success and lessons of the success to many generations. Well, you know, that's their best, that's their first and best line of defense. Um, but another, maybe a broader point, as I was thinking about the book, and I was thinking about things I could relate this to, if we think of modern portfolio theory as, as, as a type of technology, which it is, um, it, as you've made clear, it's really heavily reliant on math. It's really heavily reliant, it turns out, on computers. If we think about it as technology, think about other technological innovations in which the, um, the progenitor, or the inventor, was unable to go to the next step. They had they stuck they stuck with the previous thing that they had developed, and they could not find make the, that next step to the further development of that technology. I'm thinking of the Wright brothers, the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, by 1906, 1908, they were so far ahead of, of the French, for example, when they finally they first demonstrated their plane. Even after five years of of flying, they were so far ahead. Um, and yet, by 1912, 19, by 1914, by the beginning of the Great War, 
um, they had fallen far behind. Now, partly that was because they were protecting their patents, but there's there's something else psychological there. Um, they had gotten they thought, thought, well, you know, what we came up with over five years worked really well. Let's stick with it. Um, I think you can see that, uh, give another aerospace example. Uh, right now, uh, we've got a competition for who's going to go back into orbit uh, and man flight. And we've got one people who are doing pretty much the same way that they did it last time, only not as good, 1969. And then we've got other sort of companies. See, I'm not naming companies. We've got another set of companies that are trying to find a new way of doing things, which builds up on that previous example. Is that Am I analogizing at least halfway right? Yeah, half, halfway right. I, I, you know, I, when you uh, – the examples that you're giving are, apply to many corporations that are successful and then they, they become a prisoner of their success because they, they're sure. afraid to evolve further. In, in, uh, I, I want to give some, some credit on uh, – to the developers of, of modern portfolio theory. Um, other people came along and implemented practical solutions and then further developments, and they're mm. described in the book. It's not just uh, uh, the first, you know, the founding fathers, uh, Markowitz and, and Bill Sharp. Uh, other people came along and said, "Let's make this more practical and okay. uh, impl- implementable," and they they really succeeded. And that's why it's the uh, dominant paradigm uh, now um, and accepted the accepted knowledge. Uh, in, it's. I don't want to make a claim that it isn't hasn't been anything other than a tremendous success. But yes, um, but I, yeah, you're saying you're saying though that it is flawed, and you say you don't yep. you don't care about the theoretical perspective, but it is quote flawed from a practical perspective. So why is it flawed from a practical perspective? Because it doesn't take into account cash flows, and this is an, uh, so the total return and the uh, volatility defined by Harry Markowitz in 1952, and then uh, improved upon and uh, revised and modernized by all the subsequent people uh, really focuses on share price returns only and doesn't focus on the cash returns on the the, the dividends and the income streams and doesn't it, it makes you a prisoner of the sh- the stock market where you know during the internet bubble if you remember 20 years ago people didn't even know what they were buying they're just buying particular stock they didn't care what the company did because it was going to go up uh, right. and so so instead of a business sensibility, and again, modern portfolio theory doesn't really exist outside of the stock market. It is a stock market phenomenon because it is so, in my humble opinion, so almost anti-business. Uh, mm. And what I'm simply pointing out is that uh, it uh, allows people and encourages people to speculate in share prices without regard to the cash flows that are the real measure of success. And that's a subjective judgment on my part. But mm-hmm. the real measure of success in any other business outside the stock market, there are no pieces of real estate – that you or your family or your friends have owned for the last 10 years, uh, uh, commercial real estate or residential real estate, where you, you don't get a rent check. If you do, it's a fail. If, if there is an example, it's a failed It's a failed business. You, you buy real estate to start collecting uh, checks at some point. Uh, there is no uh, fast food franchise that you purchase uh, and, and manage without the ability within a short period of time to start taking distributions from it. There is no mm-hmm. oil well or, or natural gas field. Uh, there really is no job where people only accept a piece of paper that they can go into the market and trade uh, for money that is stock. Uh, uh, the plumber works for cash. Uh, the grocery store takes cash. The phone company wants cash. They will not take 
uh, uh, stock in, in companies. They insist on cash. The measurement of a success of a business is its ability to generate cash. This is from uh, a very interesting academic in 1906, uh, Irving Fisher. Um, and, uh, you know, he has some very nice phrases that are quoted in the book about, you know, ultimately the value of, of any external enterprises, the, the cash flows that you can derive from it. And the U.S. stock market and modern portfolio theory has just bludgeoned that to death. And that's why the U.S. stock market is so anomalous to A, other stock markets, and B, you know, I, I think uh, people need to understand what they're getting into. If, they're, if they adopt a business-like approach, they're going to insist on cash payments. If they want to take on the risk and the rewards i let's listen the u.s stock market's been very very successful over the last certainly over the last 12 years and and our last uh, 10 years and and you know many decades before that where uh non-dividend paying securities they really emerged in the 1980s uh the, the the tech stocks and so forth they they come to the fore in the 90s but they get a good start in 1982 with a securities law change um uh, you take on you tremendous opportunity. You find that IPO or that unicorn or that that tremendously uh, you know that, that company that just is going to make a billion dollars, and you're going to you know the next uh, the next uh, Fang stock, and and that's wonderful. But that's very historically anomalous. And so when I say it hasn't worked out as a practical matter, it's because it's shifted the focus of investors from the cash flows of a business to just the share price. And I just don't think that's super healthy. But if I invest in, a, say, an index fund, which is the index fund, the S&P 500, mm -hmm. um, I'm investing in then, are you saying that I'm, I'm speculating? Because I'm certainly, I mean, I'm speculating that the stock market will continue to grow and rise. Correct. You uh, are speculating in the sense that you are getting by without a cash payment. The yield, the dividend that you will get mm -hmm. from the S&P 500 is right now below 2%. So if you put, you know, uh, let's say fortunate enough to put $100,000 in the S&P 500, you will get a check right now. We'll round up and say $2,000 a year. And probably next year, it'll mm -hmm. be $2,100. Let's say it grows by 5%. It may grow a little bit more, may grow a little bit less. That's that's good. But you're getting a, a yield of 2%. Um, um, that's awfully, awfully low. Instead, mm -hmm. your return is going to be whether the share prices go up or down. And as you may have noticed, share prices go up or down based on presidential tweets, mm -hmm. uh, various other factors which may or may not affect the uh, profits and, uh, of, of various companies uh, that constitute the S&P 500. Uh, it is because the yield is so low. And the cash flow is an insignificant portion, the, the realized cash flow is an insignificant portion of the, the expected total return. And total return is defined as the income you receive from an investment plus the change in the price. Mm -hmm. For the U.S. stock market for the last 20, 30 years, it's, all, it's been all about the share prices, not about the cash flows. And again, that's anomalous. Um, so is that speculation? Well, if you buy an S&P 500 fund, you're, you're not really subject to any individual company failing because it's widely, almost excessively <coughs> diversified. That's good. But mm -hmm. you're fundamentally, from my perspective and in a dictionary perspective, not the SEC definition, but in a dictionary uh, definition. You're speculating because you are you, uh, the def dictionary definition of speculation is an expectation of change in the in the uh, in the price of something, not the underlying utility. And I link the utility to the cash flows. So instead, we should be investing to look for companies that have utility that have cash flows. Um, 
Or, 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 you know, bet it all on black or red. It's up to you. But just know what you're doing, uh, yeah. and uh, that you know that the know what you're doing. That's that's the plea. And you know, again, realize that the way the the uh, a cashless investment may be an incredibly successful share price gainer, and then you sell successfully, and you do have a lot of cash, and you're more than welcome to do that. But that's very different from owning a business, and that's what I'm arguing for in the book is, you know, getting back to business is to apply the sensibility of being a business investor, <laughs> five, worked out over 5,000 years of recorded and, and unrecorded Western history, um, and, and applying that to the U.S. stock market. Well, you have a quote from Warren Buffett, which I can remember being really impressive when I heard some version of this in the past. Uh, he says, whenever Charlie Munger and I buy common stocks, we approach the transaction as if we were buying into a private business. We look into the economic prospects of the business, the people in charge of running it, and the price we must pay. When investing, we view ourselves as business analysts, not as market analysts, not as macroeconomic analysts, and not even security analysts. So how, how does that apply to, say, me, if I'm trying to? How, how would I ever know what, um, you know, AJ Goldfarb is like? I just made that company up. Um, I, I don't know what it says that I came let's, up with that let's, name. Let's, let's be honest and say it doesn't make sense for you to spend a lot of time going over the reports of AJ Goldfarb. And let's assume that's not a company. I again, hope it's I don't, not. Yeah, I hope no, it's not. It, yes. Um, so it, 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 you have a day job. It's not in financial services, and you, you don't wish to do it. There are two options you have. Um, uh, one is to hire an advisor. That's what – you know, you don't do your own brain surgery. You you may or may not do your own roof repairs. You usually hire someone who's better at that than you are to handle those. Uh, investing's the same way, uh, but if you hire an intermediary, you you have to pay the intermediary, um, and the intermediary, uh, you know, will either do a good or a bad job. Now, the 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 the, the criticism of intermediaries over the past two, three decades is that they don't actually do a, a good job and their fees have been very high. And guess what? Both of those charges are true. They have not done a very good job and their fees have been very high. The good news is their fees aren't anywhere near as high as they used to be for a variety of reasons I'll get into right now. And um, their ability to not do a very good job is actually also diminishing. So now, I, in the interest of full disclosure, I work for a firm that uses intermediaries uh we rely on intermediaries so you know just so you're aware that uh I, i'm i'm speaking my own book of business but intellectually it's still true you have as an investor in your 401k or your taxable account that is your assets you have you have the ability to make your own choices or to hire someone to help you make those choices if you don't want to hire an investor um you have two uh, an advisor you have two choices one you can put in the time and effort to study investments, whether that's the local pizza shop down the street that you want to buy into, uh, a college, uh, you know, a, in a college town, or a in Charlottesville, or a uh, residential apartment building, or if you want to invest in a franchise, or if you want to put the money into the stock market, you can make those choices. Uh, the path of least resistance is just buying an index fund. Index funds emerged in the, and ETFs they emerged over the past couple decades, and they have a virtue in which they. Um, you know, represent basically large swaths of the market. So you don't have to deal with individual company analysis, but you, you get what you get. They're, they're relatively inexpensive. Uh, uh, but you are, you know, uh, deciding to not decide. Mm -hmm. uh, or you're saying, and I've had 
I had a finance professor respond to my books saying, I don't care about stocks. I just – I don't want to own stocks. I just want to own an index. I'll take the S&P 500. I know exactly what it is. If it goes down, I accept that. If it goes up, I'm happy. I don't care about the cash flows because I know there aren't any cash flows from it. Uh, yeah. It's all the share price, and that's what I want. Now, he, as a finance professor, has come to that decision um, knowingly and, and you know has considered it. So that's 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 fine. So you know those are the options. It would be what I'd recommend to you and to is to simply say how have I thought about making other major decisions, and do I apply the same standards to my investments as I apply to other things professional decisions, personal decisions, lifestyle mm-hmm. decisions, and at least know that you're making that call. But uh, the one thing I would argue is don't assume that, that you know, uh, that um, there's, uh, you know, just buying an index fund and, and, and leaving it at that, that that is a, you know, kind of making a decision because it, it's making a decision to not make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that, again, mm-hmm. for certain people, that's fine, but they need to know that. And not make, and as, as, uh, as I had a history professor say, to not make a decision is to make a decision. Yes, but very – and uh, true, it's the question is whether you're aware of it or not. Yeah. Um, so I've already talked a little bit about this. Uh, as we wrap up, I want to get back to it. Um, so how did all this critique emerge from being a historian? Well, the this that's a great question. The style in which I found myself investing – Uh-huh is out of favor, has been out of favor for decades. Dividend investing is now, uh, dividend investing used to be investing. And I made the point a couple of times, dividend investing is investing in the private sector and in most stock markets outside the United States, outside of emerging markets. Uh, It just is. Um, But it fell out of favor in the United States and uh, with in favor of stock investing, what I, again, kind of call speculation or the grand casino in, in the first book. And again, that's not the SEC definition. That's mine. Uh, and so I I found myself working for uh, in this particular style in a firm, and it was so natural for me as a dividend investor because it was so historically I don't know, validated, historically justified. Dividend investing is basically business investing. And I I think I just naturally migrated in that direction and then wanted to articulate that to others. And that's basically the, the point of the books that I've written is that this is, this is business investing. Um, it's an option for you. It's currently a boutique investment style, investing in, in uh, getting back to business as it were. Uh, the... the um, the dominant investment style in the U.S. is is all about the share prices, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not illegal, not immoral, not an unethical, and it can be very, very profitable. But it's it's really not the same type of business investing that someone who operates outside the stock market or someone with a historical sensibility would would view. If you if you uh, you know parachuted someone from from a parachute's not the right word, but uh, if someone came from Mars to to look at us and then they looked at how we invest in the stock market, they would say, that is strange. Mm. That is inconsistent with how businesses are run elsewhere and inconsistent with your own history. And that's that's uh, how I ended up where I did. Yeah, this is, um, I sent you a list of sort of the the rubric of historical thinking skills, which more or less guides a, a lot of things in this podcast. These aren't the only skills of historical thinking, but they're the ones that I used to look for in students' papers. Um, I didn't come up with this. I learned it from colleagues 
my colleague Lendl Calder at Augustana College. Um, one of the things I was thinking about as I read the book and thought about this approach that you've developed is how nicely it, it captures this the whole idea of, of the skill of multiple perspectives of thinking historically. How might others plausibly interpret this evidence differently? Which you just did. The man from Mars, mm -hmm. the, the person from Mars, the person from, say, 1480s Venice, even, mm -hmm. um, having them come back and say, well, what's, does this make sense in historical? This Is this different? It's the assumption of things always being that way, which is always dangerous, as if there's been no change over time. It, it, indeed. And again, there, it's not, there's nothing wrong with, uh, elsewhere I refer to, the the grand casino and so there's nothing wrong with the grand casino if you know that it's a casino right it is troubling if you walk in and think this is a business investment uh mm -hmm. and you should really distinguish the two and take an approach and and uh again i'm not trying to dismiss biotechs and and internet stocks and, and even very large successful companies that begin with an a and deliver goods and don't have a dividend uh even though they could easily afford one uh but i'm just saying people should know that this is actually anomalous that a investment would be made without any expectation of cash payment other than going into the marketplace and selling the shares uh, and that um, uh, you're encouraged to invest in something like that through modern portfolio theory in effect because modern portfolio theory de-emphasizes the cash payments and so uh, I'm, that's that's the historian's cry <laughs> of saying please be aware of other models um what are some are there other any other ways of, of thinking like a historian that have uh, affected you as a portfolio manager you know i i think there's a great deal one of the um uh, one of the, the very interesting developments interestingly from finance which is a quantitative mathematical rational actor theory everyone has the same utility curves i'm using jargon don't worry mm -hmm. i'm not going to use it again is the emergence over the past couple of days of behavioral finance which just points out the way that how people behave is is not exactly the way the university of chicago uh, ha has described how people behave in investing and in life in general and making decisions and so i think there's been um a a as a historian however you naturally see that you're familiar with how people behaved in the 1920s or the the tulip boom or the railroad boom that you mentioned uh trollop and the the way we live now and the railroad boom mm -hmm. in in england and uh that having uh, that sensibility of of human behavior over time also helps looking at um how humans behave in the stock market now you know are there bubbles are there bubbles well modern portfolio theory and uh efficient market theory which is a related development we won't get into it you know basically suggests there can't be bubbles well there are bubbles all the time history's filled um, with bubbles and if you are a historian i can mention them because they don't exist which one's this pets.com pets.com they don't exist thank you they, as long as they don't exist. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so, and there, there are many many other uh companies that that fell to the wayside uh in bubbles and uh but according to modern theory there really shouldn't be bubbles because the system's very uh efficient and and yet their history is littered with bubbles history is littered with name your bad behavior in the in the financial services market from the last five years trust me whatever it is someone's done it before Name your good behavior in the financial services industry. Trust me, someone's done it before. So uh, that that's where being a historian, I think, and, and taking historical sensibility is is very, very helpful. 
My guest today has been Daniel Paris. He is a historian of Soviet Russia, still goes to conferences and whatnot. He's also a vice senior vice president and senior portfolio manager at Federated Investors in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and host of the New Books in Finance on the New Books Network. Daniel, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.